all families have unique practices that shape how they do things in their homes. Some things are from their culture, and they're, therefore they're shared by many families from that culture. And sometimes you don't even know that this is a unique family cultural practice until you go into the home of someone else who is from a different culture. Like whenever someone comes into our home, we ask them if they don't do so already by their own habits to take off their shoes. Some of you may have this practice in your home. And so if someone walks around with shoes in my house, uh, we remind them to take off shoes uh, because that's what we do in our house. And I used to be more timid of asking people to do this, especially of workers uh, who came into our house if they were doing something. We asked someone to come over, fix something, work on something, give us an estimate for something. And then I would be timid, so I wouldn't ask them to do it, but then I would secretly cringe and judge them for not taking off shoes when they came into our house. Maybe you've done this or experienced this before. But now I just tell them straight up. And most people nowadays, they have some kind of booties or they have no problem. They experience this enough. Uh, but growing up, uh, I grew up in a place where I had many friends who didn't share this practice. I would go over to their homes and they'd be wearing shoes all around their house. And then whenever I came, came into their house uh, and I was ready to take off my shoes because that's what we do in our house, they would ask me to keep them on, which feels really weird. But eventually the dude just what they did in their homes because I reasoned if they knew where my shoes had been and I was walking around their house, I think they would want to keep their shoes on too. And it's strange though because they keep their shoes on. They would even sit on their beds and have their shoes on. They would put their feet on their couches with their shoes. And I'm like, do you not know where you walk? Like this was different family practices. There's all kinds of things like that. And you experience them when you go into the home of someone else who doesn't come from the same background as you. Or maybe there are unique things to your house. Many of you maybe share that same cultural expectation of taking off shoes when you walk into homes. Some of you have that practice um, for various reasons. But I think one unique thing to my house that isn't probably shared with the majority of people uh, who grew up in the Bay Area is uh, I invited Jeanette to come over when we first started dating. She was going to meet my parents, hang out with them, and you know, I go say hi to my mom. We get there. You know, it's kind of nervous. You're, you're nervous because you're introducing your girlfriend now to your, to your you know, parents for the first time. It's nerve wracking. And I'm like, where's dad? And she's like, my dad's in the garage. And I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh no. I'm just like, this is, this is that moment where unique family practices are just going to come out. I walk over to the garage. I'm like, my heart is beating really fast because I'm introducing this new girlfriend to my parents. And my dad is there dressing a deer that he has just murdered in our garage. Dressing does not mean putting clothes on them, by the way, if you are familiar with hunting. He is doing things to that animal I won't go into. But that's the thing in my house. It's a, it's a cultural family practice. There's taxidermy animals in my home. That, that's just what, it's a practice of my family. There are practices that you experience in a family. They're sometimes shared by a cultural group. Sometimes they're unique things. When it comes to the family of God, there, every church you go to, local church, will have some unique things to them. And sometimes they will also then share some common things to a, maybe a denomination or background. But there are universal practices that mark Orthodox, faithful, Jesus-following churches. And I want to look at those two universal practices of the family of God, baptism and communion. 
There are unique things to every single local church. This is why you may have heard uh, Pastor Gabriel mention this in the past, something we started uh, when I was a youth pastor uh, over a decade ago. During the senior year, we asked, we want to teach the seniors, many of them going away to college in different places, never having to choose a church for themselves. We take them to visit various churches around our city. Uh, and that's a lesson in helping them see uh, and kind of review and think about what it means to choose a church maybe for the first time in their life because kids just go to church uh, with their parents when they're young um, because they're unique things. And how do you look through that? Some of them are just preferences. Some of them are styles that, that it's completely unimportant. But what are foundational things that you should care about? And I want to look at foundational things, two of them, two practices that mark biblical Jesus-following churches, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Baptism first and then communion. Baptism marks the initial entry into a family. It's the initial entry into the family of God. It's a celebration of belonging to God's family. That's why at 11 o'clock, I'm going to call our church to, to go and celebrate and be present, to pray with them, to cheer with them, to hear testimonies. This is something we do, whether we personally know that person being baptized or not, because they are our family. We celebrate with them. Like a family does when having a party after the birth of their child. Sometimes they do it right away. Sometimes they wait 30 days. Something I have to learn about what Chinese background families do in the Bay Area because I didn't experience this as a kid was they do something called a red egg and ginger party. I was completely unfamiliar with this practice until I moved here. This is not a family practice I had and I didn't experience this. So that's why I tell people when I moved to San Francisco, I learned to be Chinese, a different kind of Chinese because I didn't have that growing up. Uh, but we have practices like that. We, you know, that we celebrate this child. That party, the red egg and ginger party, doesn't make that child family, right? But it celebrates that they are. It's a welcoming party. Sometimes families do this, or actually often families do this too, in adoption stories, where you adopt a child, and often, if, especially if they're coming from another country, they come back and their family and friends gather to welcome and to celebrate this newly adopted child. In Matthew chapter 3, it tells us how Jesus was baptized. He went to John the Baptist. Actually, ironically, I think God was trying to inform that I should really mention this in this sermon because I, this is where we were in the Bible. I'm reading to Selah at night and we just came to the story last night. And she was asking the same kind of questions many of us asked. Like, it's interesting that Jesus got baptized. But he went to John the Baptist at the Jordan and he told him and asked him, I want you to, to baptize me. And John's response was, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Now, let me say it's a, probably a good general rule not, never to rebuke Jesus, <laughs> right? I mean, every time you see in the Bible someone rebuking Jesus, it's probably not a good thing. Uh, but I, I mean, even the few times you see Peter rebuking Jesus or hear John the Baptist rebuking him, I kind of understand like he understands who Jesus is. He's just the preparer of the way. He's rejecting. He's not the savior, even though people are thinking he might be. He, he's saying, well, why should I baptize you? And Jesus says he's getting baptized to fulfill all righteousness. It's not his righteousness. He's not getting baptized because he needs cleansing himself. He has no sins. He doesn't need to, even though this Holy Spirit is represented the fall and you hear the Father speak, it's not like he didn't have the Spirit. He was always in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit. He doesn't need to remind himself that he's united to the Father. He was baptized for our good, our righteousness. The dove comes, and the Holy Spirit, represented in a dove, descends from heaven, the Father speaks, 
and everyone who's there hears, this is my beloved son, in whom I delight. There is the family language, and also this public celebration or announcement of delight in Jesus. When we are baptized into Christ, in many ways you could imagine hearing this kind of family affirmation from the Father because of the work of Jesus, that we, because of our unitedness to Jesus, also hear from the Father, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I delight. When the baptism, when we look at the baptism of Jesus, it's important to say, it's at that moment, uh, sometimes you know, throughout history, people have wrongly come to the conclusion that that's when he became the Son of God. That he wasn't the Son of God until this very moment. That that's not true. He was always the eternal Son of God. But it's at this baptism that it's publicly announced. It's publicly celebrated. It's interesting that even at the announcement of Jesus in, in his birth, and you see this kind of centering and kind of coming to him and following the star, you see this. But for about 30 years, people don't begin to follow him. People don't begin to align themselves to this Savior come to the world. It's at this moment that this public announcement and celebration, you see this begin. They have a party for Jesus, in a sense. The Holy Spirit and the Father celebrate and declare to the world, this is my Son. Now, the party the celebration, the declaration doesn't make him family, but it celebrates him as family. In the same way, when we celebrate baptisms in a moment at 11 o'clock, we aren't saying that that moment of going in the water and out is what saves these individuals. No, it's a celebration of what God has already done in these brothers and sisters. Jesus gives us an example of baptism, but here in Paul's writings in Romans 6, he gets into it a little more for us to understand as we read. Look with me again at verses 3 to 5 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. A couple things to grasp from this, a couple truths. Baptism is a display of God's grace. It's a picture representing God's grace. And it's also a profession of our faith. It's a picture of grace. It's a profession of our faith. It's a picture of grace. Think about what happens when someone goes into the waters of immersion. Romans chapter 6 says that they're buried with Christ. They're buried into his death. And why did Jesus die? It wasn't because he deserved to die. It wasn't because he need, needed to die on behalf of his own sin. He did it representing us on behalf of us as our substitute, which means his death takes the death that we deserve to die. And when he, we identify with him in what he has done, it means our death, our sin, our past, all the things that haunt us, all the things of sexual brokenness that we prayed for in a, earlier, all those things that bring us shame, all the things that you're afraid of someone finding out, that has died. It has been buried with Christ. Which then also means if we rise with the resurrection of his, we are set free. That's the picture of grace. We're no longer slaves to those desires. We are free as children, just as Jesus is free. 
We don't just stay down. We rise, washed clean. The stain of sin is gone and we are now clothed. We are now covered in Jesus. It's a picture of grace because the death has now happened. The death that we deserve, the covering of all the past, all the present, all the future sins that we will do in our lives, all completely finished in Jesus' work. That represents that death. His coming out means there's life and hope and a covering of us, a washing. I like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, for as many of us were buried into Christ have put on Christ. It's like a clothing analogy. Stains removed and uh, pure garments covering us. This is why as we're looking at 2 Corinthians as one of the main books we're looking at this year, we, we say that, you know, for he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're not just paid for in our sins. We're also covered. We're also clothed by Jesus. Put on Christ. It's like a clothing analogy. And whether you care about clothes or not, you know that clothes represent various situations and circumstances. They sometimes represent who you are. And that matters a lot in New York and LA and you know, Paris, clothing matters. And especially if you work in the clothing or design industry, you understand that certain places you work, the clothing marks who you are and what you're about. That's why many churches that, that the church and the pastors often still wear suits because it represents in their understanding a certain way. That, that can be a good thing. It can also be something that's legalistic too, but it, it can represent something positive. Clothing marks sometimes who you are and where you shop and it represents something. So if you show up to a funeral and you wear certain clothes that are overly colorful, unless the person asks for that, could speak a certain way. Or if you're a woman and you go to a wedding of a friend and you wear white, what does that mean, right? So like you understand that clothing speaks to something. And when we come out of the waters of baptism, it's a picture that we have been washed and now we're clothed in Christ. Jesus is what covers me. You know, sometimes, you know, you go to like movie uh, pre like premieres and People are asking what they're wearing. Actually, I think uh, I was talking to someone this week. I forgot who it was. But, you know, um, they just had the NBA draft, right? And it's kind of less about basketball. It's sometimes about clothing, even for the NBA draft now. They're like, oh, what are you wearing? Who are you wearing? And Because that represents status. And if we were to use that analogy, when we're out of the waters of baptism, we're clothed in Christ, we're saying, and it's a picture, Jesus is my status. Jesus is my identity. Jesus is who I wear. Jesus is who I identify with. The picture is a picture of grace. Jesus was sent to die for our sins. We're united with him in that death. We're also united with him in the coming out to hope and life. It's a picture of grace. It's also a profession. And it's a declaration that this grace has changed me. I trust Jesus. My life is his and you're identifying with him, you're also identifying with his church. He doesn't save us to be lone rangers. He doesn't save us to be isolated individuals. He saves us into his body. That's why we do baptism in a, in a public way. And that varies based upon churches. But you never just have, you, you rarely have, if you don't have a, if you have a chance to, have just one person baptizing themselves. That usually never happens. But even then, you rarely see baptism with just one person. 
unique circumstances would call for that in biblical history as well as church history in present history. There is a place for that. We don't lock that in. But as much as we are able to, we, we do so in the presence of our family. It's like if a family had a baby and they didn't want to celebrate that with their extended family. Like grandparents, no, you can't see this baby. All the grandparents would be horrified, right? In some way, we, we, we should, as a family, when someone declares the baptism, want that kind of intimacy and access because that's our family. We, so we display publicly. And we're saying, you are our family. We identify with you too. Think about this profession and this displaying this in the context of our family and why this is important. I mean, Jesus, in his identifying with us, in his ministry, it wasn't a private thing. Whenever someone asks me about like salvation and how amazing the grace of God is, like I'm always struck. You know, God is all-powerful. He can save everyone. You know, he, he could have saved us by sending a book. He could have. He sent the person. He could have sent us someone who just kind of wanted to hide away by themselves and do something that could save us where no one else would know about it. That's possible too. God could do that. He did it in the most public way possible in their time. He didn't say, I love you, but let's keep it a secret. It's like that middle school kid and girl and boy who are kind of getting into a relationship for the first time. No, I'm going to keep it a secret. Right? Mom and dad can't know. Sometimes I think some of us want that kind of relationship with Jesus. Let's not tell anyone. No, he got crucified publicly on a hill. He wasn't ashamed. And when we get baptized, it is a profession to our family, at least. He has changed everything. I've been broken, but I've made new in him. Baptism is this initial entry into the family. But it's also, if you think about it, even though we do it once in our life, it's also something that marks a remembrance in our life. If you look at the Bible, it, it has a lot of conversation about memory and remembering and remembrance. God is regularly calling his people to remember. Part of that is because we're forgetful people, not because we forget facts, but because we start to live in, you know, in other ways according to our flesh again. So I think, I think about my own baptism. I don't remember all the details about it because... I'm getting older, but I was about 16 to 17. I was baptized in Michigan. I remember my family there. I remember my church there. I can think about my youth leaders who were volunteer youth leaders for about a decade to this little church that we were at and how they were so significant. And I, when I was considering Eric and Lori and the friends I had who were followers of Jesus and their encouragement to me and my friend Dave, who was walking with me, who was already a Christian and through my rough years as a teenager, I well up with gratitude. I can remember that moment. I can think about how gracious God was to me and how since then he's continued to be gracious to me. I remember that. I remember the people. I remember what God has done. I remember the joy of being set free. That's a reminder. You, you kind of plant a moment in time and saying, I professed, I remember trusting. And it's not just to the individual. It's a family thing. It's for all of us. But that's why we show up and we celebrate as a family because it also calls to mind our own baptisms. 
And it's a, it's a way that God graciously calls us to remembrance. So when we who've been baptized and we go to celebrate the baptism of our family members as a church, we call to mind different moments of our baptism history. And it calls us to remember God's grace in the people in our lives and hopefully compels us to deeper and renewed trust in him. It's like every single time this experience happens often in the summertime, right? Especially if you know people who are young still about to get married, you go to a wedding and every single wedding, whether actually they're Christians or not, usually there's some moment where people give vows. And whenever someone enters into the gracious moment of exchanging commitments and entering into a covenant, it calls to mind all those who are married in attendance, their own vows. And by God's grace, he can use that to renew and strengthen marriages and vows. It's the same way when baptism is declared, it calls us to remember our own. And it calls that person to mark a moment in their time for remembrance. Last thing I'll say about baptism, it's really about receiving more than it is about anything else. Even it's, it's displayed in that picture. When someone goes into the waters of baptism, well, we ask them questions first. So yes, there is a, a bit of response. But if you just think about the actual immersion, going into the waters of baptism, coming out, what do you have to really do to get baptized? Nothing. We fall into the arms of another we trust, representing our trust in our faith in God, that we do nothing else but receive his grace. We receive salvation by this trust. We haven't done anything to earn it. It's by grace that we receive the death that covered our death. It's by grace we receive the hope of resurrection. It's a picture of God's grace. It's a profession of faith. It's meant to be a defining moment, a turning point that we can remind ourselves of and we remind the church of. And some of you may need that defining moment because I know when, especially as I sit down with people and talk to them and they're vulnerable enough to share their life, we all have defining moments in our life. Some of them very significant, but it's interesting. The things that often shape us the most in terms of defining moments are often the most painful ones. Right? If you think about there, there are, and all of us carry some of that. And the older we get, the more those become real to us or the more they, we, we understand defining negative moments in our life. Right? Some of us have great things. We have successes in our life, but even those don't last. The defining moments often that shape us most significantly are some of those more difficult ones. And what we need as the people of God is remembering defining moments like baptism that we look back on as like, this is God's grace in my life. He has made me new. That first practice of baptism is an entrance into God's family. It's a first act of obedience. I'll speak to some things in a moment at the end in terms of application, but it's a first moment. I'll repeat this. I'm going to say it now. I'll say it at the end. But like that, that's, I say first moment. It's an entrance because I, I do think there's a common misunderstanding for whatever reason. It's often not even taught in churches. I think it just exists in our kind of our, our thinking that baptism is reserved for the perfect person or the person who's reached a certain point. No, if you see, see throughout scripture again and again, it's, it's for the person who first, it's like the birth story. And what do babies do when they're born? They can't do anything. They just receive in grace. So when we're born to Christ, the very moment that that happens, we don't, we don't have any obedience yet. The first act of obedience is baptism. It's not when we reach a certain point in our life. But 
communion, the other family practice that marks the family of God, is the ongoing grace of being in God's family, of being sanctified and nourished in God's family. If baptism is the entrance into grace in God's family, communion is the sustaining and the ongoing grace in the family. Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room before he was crucified, and that was a family meal. Interesting how some of these things are so kind of basic but profound in our life that one of the ways that God calls us as his people to remember him and be sustained by him is something so simple as eating and a shared meal that crosses every single culture, every single place, every single time in history. People understand the power of a shared meal. And when we think about the Lord's Supper on a regular basis practiced by the church, I I think we sometimes miss it because the symbols that we hold in our hands are sometimes, most of the time, very small or sometimes even just kind of insignificant because the way we do it in churches at times. But for Jesus, it was a full meal. This was the Passover time. It was hours of eating. They were reclined in probably a U-shaped table, which meant that they were leaning to one side and also using one hand to eat as they're supporting their body with the other part of their body. They were reclining and eating bread and drinking wine and eating fruit and amazing things, celebrating Passover, reminding themselves. Remember, Passover represents the time we read about not too long ago in Exodus, where God is saving his people, delivering them this final judgment for the people of Egypt, but the final deliverance for God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he brings them into the promised land. They, they remember this unblemished, perfect lamb was sacrificed and they spread the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. And when God came to judge Egypt for their pride and their sin and taking of the firstborn, he passed over those who were covered by the blood of the lamb. And they were remembering this story. They were recalling the story, fellowshipping, enjoying food over this long meal together. And Jesus takes that story that marks their identity and he restores that story for a new covenant, a new season that we are in. Matthew 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is taking this story, this practice that they would regularly do on an annual basis to remember God's faithful salvation in Israel's history. He's saying, this was pointing to me. And what I'm going to do that you don't want to happen, this will mark a new moment in history. And he takes the bread, he takes the wine, it's representing these elements, and you're wondering, where's that sacrificial lamb then? We connect that to himself, a perfect, sinless sacrifice. He says, this is, he takes a bread, he said, this is my body. He says, this is for you. Often we'll have in our minds, and actually pastors and Christians will say this, we'll say broken for you. Uh, this is a little bit just small, nerdy pet peeve of mine. It never says broken for you. Uh, one of the things that's nerdy about this is because you know, prophecy says he won't have any broken bones. 
So we say it because we break bread, but Jesus isn't broken in that particular way for us. I mean, it makes sense imagery-wise. It's a nerdy little pet peeve. That's why I never say broken for you. I just say, this is his body for you, because that's what he says too. And then he says, this cup and this wine represents a new covenant. It binds us together as family. Just in the same way that God passed over and saved out of Egypt because of this sacrifice, there's going to be a sacrifice that's going to save. But you don't have to do this all the time. It's going to be done once and for all. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you gather, Paul calls us to do this in remembrance of me. Jesus called his people to remember because just like we forget the grace and baptism from long ago, if we've been baptized, we forget God's gospel in our daily lives. We don't forget the facts. We don't forget it in our minds. We forget it here, don't we? We'll, we'll profess it. We'll sing about it in the hour and 15 minutes we're in church. And sometimes immediately right after my kid goes insane and I forget that grace that flies to them too, right? We forget that in behavior, in heart. We forget. We don't earn God's grace and favor. Right? So we will declare grace and then live like we need to earn favor. And we forget. That's why we come to the table again. That's when we come to these elements to remind us this was salvation. Not anything we did. We don't earn his favor. God gives us this tangible reminder to be practiced regularly to remind us that he died for our sins and every single time we take this, we recenter on this grace. And we pray the Holy Spirit renews us to him. It's in this taking of the elements that connects us to the past story of grace. It's a tangible expression, literally representing the gospel. If baptism represents this being immersed in Christ, communion represents actually Christ being in us as we consume and eat, and he's literally in that. That's why throughout history, you've had different understandings of communion, which I don't have time to get into all the little things, but if you remember transubstantiation, consubstantiation, all those fancy words, maybe you learned, if you actually went to a Lutheran school, right? So you went to West Portal. Remember those words? If you don't, it's okay. But you think about all those things. There is, a, at least you can get this. If we're immersed and identified with him, if we eat, it's in us. That's what we, we are, what we eat, right? He's literally united to us, representing that. Eat the supper. We, re- we recognize. Even when we eat, we know something had to die for us to eat and consume. We don't think about that when it comes to bread and wheat, but still it has to die for us to eat it and actually gain something good from it, which means death has occurred. Because Jesus' death means our sins have been covered and died for. Christ's body was given so that we would be made whole. His blood was shed and it covers all of us so that God could stay. Receiving the Lord's Supper is a joyous occasion. It does tie us to the past, as I mentioned. It also ties us to the future. Think about the imagery represented in the kingdom of God regularly in the Gospels, definitely in Revelation. Right? There's a rejoicing because there's a feast. If you think about all the imagery of celebration and kingdom, it's around a table. It's around food and celebration. There's a reason why we're drawn to festivals and food trucks and like, you know, farmers markets, because that actually is built into us to long for that. 
You realize, ever realize that? Like, throughout Asia, if you notice, throughout Asia and many parts of East Asia who do not yet know Christ, so you, you find everywhere in Asia, night markets around food because built in the image of God is wanting that. I believe that. That's one way to connect across cultures. There's always food because we have longing. We are longing for that feast of the end. Revelation tells us this is not going to be like any feast, even the best meals you've ever had in your life. One of the best meals I've ever experienced I've ever had in my life was last year celebrating my 40th with Jeanette. She took me to this amazing place where it was, it's amazing because it's secluded and it's like this weird island you have to go to outside of Seattle. And it's like a, it's like a whole day thing in this hospitality place. It's not just like a few moments. It's like celebration. And that was amazing. And as amazing as it is, when I read Revelation and I ask the Spirit to help me understand, this feast is best drinks, best food, huge table, all our family members who are in Christ from all of time in Jesus, rejoicing, celebrating everybody, being satisfied. That is our hope. And we take this as a foretaste for that. We receive it as a foretaste for glory a small table small elements but as we submit ourselves to see the past grace here we also ask the holy spirit to help us see the future grace of what this represents let me bring this together i mean that i'm not able to dive deep because it would be a very long sermon uh on baptism and communion but i wanted to do some teaching as we think about the church and these practices because this is what we do as the church of god Foundational things. We help people enter into the family of God through profession of baptism. We maintain nourishment and grace by communion. Actually, that's why I've only mentioned this a few times to the elders. I don't want to, I'm, I'm feeling change fatigue in general, so I don't want to change too many things. This is, by my own conviction, this is why we should do communion every week, actually. I know different people have different feelings about that throughout history, but that's my conviction because this is, we need this grace. There's a reason why regularly, and if you notice, if you've been in our church for a while, fundamentally what we will always have uh, before the sermon generally is, unless I forgot, like last week, uh, we have scripture reading. um, Because what I say sometimes may not actually be from God. It could be my foolishness. It could be my sin. It could be anything, right? What I say is not inherently, unless I'm submitting to the Lord, it may not always be. That's why you test the spirits. That's why you listen. That's why you engage in scripture and see what I'm, test what I'm saying. You don't just take it blankly. But if we read scripture, it's from God. That's why I also believe we should regularly commit to this practice of grace in the Lord's Supper because we receive the gospel in that. That's a clear command from God. Now we determine how regularly we do that based upon how we have convictions, but that is clearly grace when we point to these elements, clearly something that connects us 2,000 plus years ago to Jesus, it clearly connects us to what we will do in the future in celebration of glory. But let me, let me get a couple things uh, to apply. And really, my call is to all of us, and it's going to look different to all of us. But would you take a step of faith today? Wherever you are, we're all in different places. Some of you are brought here and Maybe you've been brought by your parents. You're like, I, I'm forced here because my parents want me to be here. You need, And that's maybe you. Or maybe you're here because a friend invited you and you're like, I, I need something and maybe going to church will give me something. Thank you for trying to pay attention to me ramble for a little bit. Um, or maybe you've been following Jesus for 50 years 
and you're feeling stuck or stagnant or hit a plateau, we're going to be at different places, but would you all take a step of faith today? For some of you, it will be that first step. There will be people here in our presence. There will be some people who are listening online who you've heard, maybe you've been listening for a little bit, you've heard about Jesus, you've heard of what it means to follow him, and you, you, you've heard this stuff, but you've not yet trusted in Jesus. You're not surrendered. You're still trying to fix yourself. You're still trying to earn it because that's our entire culture is about earning. So it feels weird otherwise. That's a scandal of grace. It is not what we do. We cannot. As best of persons we are, we cannot. I call you, if you've not yet turned to Jesus, today may be that step for you to turn to Jesus, to cling to him. And that, that, that picture you'll see if you join us for the baptism of going into the waters, that it can be true of you too because all the things in your life that weigh on you have been dealt with by Jesus. I want to call you to believe in Jesus, to plead with you, to trust in him because we love you. We want you to know him. That's why we exist. That's why we're here in San Francisco. We want to be faithful to declaring this good news and calling people to trust in Jesus. The things that you long for, the things that you want in your life, Jesus makes sense of all of that, both the good and the bad, the hopes that you have. I pray that you will see as you listen, as you engage the grace and mercy of Jesus that he has for you and you will be, and you can have this new family, this new heart, this new identity. I pray that you would take that step if you've not done that before. And one practical way you can do that is maybe someone came with you and they are a Christian, talk with them about that. Or if you are, you know, you brought, you just came and you don't know anyone, please just grab me or grab Kevin who was here earlier. I mean, I know any of the faces of people here, but maybe grab someone who looks kind of friendly, right? So everyone, that's why we smile after church because we never know when someone actually needs someone and they're looking to trust Jesus and we want to be open to that. And so, but come grab us, talk to us. We'd love to pray with you, walk with you, answer questions, be just there, wherever that is. Maybe you just have anger and doubt. We want to just sit with you and process with you, pray with you. Some of you need to take this step. Some of you believe and you've been following Jesus, but for whatever reason, you've not been baptized yet. And, and it, actually, I, I think this is sometimes true of some of us who've been believing and not yet baptized, but it's been like 10, 20, sometimes 30 years of our life. And you're thinking, well, if it's an initial entry into the family, but I've been a Christian for 30 years and I've not been baptized yet, whatever the amount of time is, like, isn't that too, have I missed my window? No, you've not. I mean, sometimes we may think it's embarrassing, right? But I want you to understand this. If you have trusted and you follow Jesus and you've never been baptized, it's never shameful to start being obedient to Jesus. You need to be baptized as long as you have time to do that. If God gives you that time to trust him, to declare for yourself a moment in time, to declare to your family that you are his. And I know that sometimes there's an embarrassment because I've, I've talked to someone before. They were a Christian for 20 years. They've gone to mission trips. They were about to even pursue ministry. They weren't even baptized yet. And it's embarrassing. It's weird, right? Because the longer you go, the harder it is. And No, it's never a shame to to be obedient to Jesus. Recognize that maybe you need to do that. You need to be baptized. Some of you have that misunderstanding. Well, I got to be a certain way. I, gotta, I have this sin I got to deal with before I get right with Jesus. No, that, that's the exact opposite of the gospel, isn't it? 
It's the, and that's actually wrong in that thinking. Where I, if I need to get things right before I get baptized, that's contrary because you have to trust in him. In fact, if you're in that place, maybe you don't know with Jesus yet and you need someone to help you understand the gospel. And you're still earning, you're still looking at Jesus as all the world looks at other religions where I need to get myself right in order to be accepted by God. No. If you've trusted in him, you've received that grace. I ask you to prayerfully consider that. And maybe if we know you, and you're a brother or sister in Christ, and I know your testimony, I know your story, you've not yet been baptized, and you have a moment because we'll have like an hour. You can go home and get clothes and we'll baptize you, right? We will, we can, if you want to take that step of faith. Now, if we don't know you, we don't know your testimony, we don't know your story, I'd love to walk with you before we just dunk you into the waters. But if we know you, we know your story, and you've not yet done that obedience, you got time. I'm going to end in like five minutes, so you got time to go home. We'll baptize you. You share your testimony. You just declare, we'll celebrate with you. That would be amazing if you want to take that step of action today. But for those of you who aren't ready today, I understand there's things. We will do it soon. Just talk to us. We'll pray with you. We'll walk with you. We want you to be obedient to Christ. Some of you, this step of faith is dealing with sin. You've been baptized. You've been following Jesus. And you know that struggle, right? The, 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 the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and you're walking and struggling and walking forward and walking backwards. And maybe you've kind of nurtured or ignored and created darkness around your life to, to hide sin. That's what sin does, right? It only can grow in darkness. And so you have that in your life. You're, in, you're beginning to become enslaved to something you know you shouldn't be. And you know you have grace in your life because you know it still. Because people who don't have grace in their life, they don't care anymore. But if you feel that struggle, you know it, and the Spirit causes that to mind, confess it to the Lord. Don't walk away from today without letting the Spirit of God call you to himself. That's what grieving the Holy Spirit is. You hear this grace, you hear this gospel, you know of sin in your life. Say, well, I don't need to do anything about that. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. And it's weird taking communion in a second and declaring baptism, representing the gospel. If you have that in your life and you profess Jesus and been baptized and following him and you are aware of that sin, you don't do anything with it, that is a dangerous place to be. And so maybe that step of faith today because you've been walking in that sin for way too long, more than walking with the Spirit, is to confess it to God and maybe find a brother or sister and ask them, you know, I just confessed this to God. I need help. Help me. Some of you maybe need to take this step of faith. You're hurting. Various things maybe have been consequences of things you've done or maybe you're hurting because things, um, you know, have been done to you. Would you take this step by being open? Just like someone needs to take a step if they're wrestling with sin. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe something's been done to you. And you've been shouldering that by yourself or holding that in. Allow the Holy Spirit, allow the Lord, allow this grace of Jesus to come into your life because he says he is near to the brokenhearted. Friends, when we all look to Jesus, take a step of faith, trust in him. 